Hello and welcome to the Pint of Science Ireland podcast. I'm Kate Finucane and today we're bringing you extended cuts of the Science Festival taking place in pubs across Ireland as part of International Pint of Science. Today we're joined by Professor Kevin McGuigan. Kevin is a professor in RCSI whose research involves using solar energy to provide safe drinking water to vulnerable communities in low to medium income countries. He has worked with communities in several countries across Africa to develop solar water disinfection techniques and he's the coordinator of two Horizon 2020 projects, Water Spout and Panny Water. So grab a pint, it's starting. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Um, Thanks for being here with us today. Can you tell us a bit about the background to your research? So people clean water in lots of different ways around the world, but you use sunlight. Can you tell us about how that works and how it compares to other methods that we can use? Okay, Kate. Uh, it's, It's pretty straightforward. There are loads of ways to treat contaminated water, microbiologically contaminated water. You can boil it, you can chlorinate it, you can filter it. They're all very good processes but if you are in a low to medium income country if you're in a community well removed from urban distribution systems then you might have a very low income in those situations you can't afford those treatments you don't you can't afford the fuel or the time to collect the fuel you might not be able to afford a filter system chlorination it's not particularly expensive but there is still an expense So where I come in with my research is we looked at the possibility of treating the water using the UV, the ultraviolet component of sunlight, for water that was stored in transparent containers. So there were all these bottles at the side of the road, uh, and we wanted to see if we could use those and the, the, the locally available solar energy to treat the water, to make it safe to consume. So that's the basic premise of solar disinfection. You put contaminated drinking water into a transparent container, you place it in direct sunlight for any time between six to eight hours, if you've got strong sunlight, and then the ultraviolet energy and the the slow thermal effect combine to inactivate whatever waterborne pathogens, those, those microbes that are causing waterborne disease, it, it will combine to inactivate those. So that was, that's the basic technique. So we started off with plastic bottles, but it doesn't have to be plastic. You can use glass bottles. You can use transparent plastic bags. So long as it's transparent, then it can be used for solar disinfection. How effective is it? It's, well, the best technique for, for water treatment would be something like reverse osmosis or boiling is very effective. But the inactivation that we've achieved with solar disinfection is on par with chlorination and with some types of filtration. So it's right up there. The big advantage is it doesn't cost you anything. Mm -hmm. No, I can definitely see how even not matching the best techniques available, getting some really good results that would match some of the chlorination, anything like that, how that would be incredibly valuable. Um, As you said, with things that might even be available on the side of the road. Yeah, and in in some respects, it's better than chlorination because there are some species of waterborne pathogen that are resistant to chlorine. Uh, I don't know if you you remember. Well, probably <laughs> I'm I'm in my my late fifties, so about ten to fifteen years ago, the water supply to Galway was contaminated with a protozoa called Cryptosporidium, 
And everybody in Galway City for about six months was boiling their water because that was a pathogen that was resistant to chlorine. But solar disinfection inactivates cryptosporidium. So there, there are swings and roundabouts. Sometimes mm. solar, solar disinfection is better than other techniques. And, and other times, for example, when the sun isn't shining, it's not the best technique. You know, it, mm. it, it, it helps you for those situations where you have access to strong sunlight. Yeah, yeah. What would be the difference between the techniques you use with the transparent vessels versus a lot of the time you might see water that has been exposed to the sunlight for long periods of time, um, stagnant standing water? Is there a particular difference as to why that hasn't been disinfected and that would be unsafe to drink? Okay, that's a reasonable question. Uh, And if you watch any of those survival programmes on TV... Mm -hmm they always say you have to treat your water. No matter how remote the water might, the source might be, removed from obvious sources of contamination. And in a perfect world, any standing water, you will have some level of solar disinfection. And, and that would be great. But if there's standing water, that's going to be used by the local fauna. So you're always going to have recontamination from whatever is using that as your water source. So you've, you've never met a cow that was toilet trained, you know. That is true. Every animal that's going down there, every fish, every mammal, every bird, every reptile, they're all recontaminating them. So you you have this continual process of solar disinfection, but recontamination. Okay. So in a perfect world, if it was left by itself completely untouched, maybe that would work. But it's the fact that you can't control the environment. Exactly. Yes. Nature is a separate um, control. So I think you noted it there, but is this something we might be able to use here in Ireland? Or is this kind of the caveat that you do need that strong sunlight that we might not have compared to some other countries? Yeah, well, if if we go back to the Galway situation, Mm. once again, I was contacted by the press during that saying, well, can we use solar disinfection? But the contamination in the Galway uh, water system was caused by really heavy rains in February and March, where the, the rain was coming off, off the mountains, it was washing a lot of the, uh, the, the cryptosporidium cysts into the water. But February and March in Ireland, you're not going to get a whole lot of, of sunshine. And Galway is probably the least sunny county in Ireland. So you can do solar disinfection in Ireland. Certainly all of our early experiments back... 25, 30 years ago, my first PhD students, we would be focusing on, we hope we have a sunny, mm-hmm. a, a sunny summer because they'd all be up on the roof of the college putting the bottles out and we would get very effective in activations. We could inactivate bottles contaminated with, uh, it would be like uh, a million E. coli bacteria in one cubic centimetre, one milliliter. Wow. And we can in- inactivate that using I- Irish sunlight in about two hours. So it turns out bacteria are very easy to kill, especially the waterborne ones for whatever reason. But it's the other types of microbial pathogens. So viruses or protozoan cysts, they're the ones that are more difficult to inactivate. So for that reason, we really need strong levels of sunlight for extended periods of time. And if you don't have that, well, then you might want to put it out for two consecutive days Oh, the other factor is you may not get a complete kill-off, but our studies have shown that even those 
those microbes that have survived a partial treatment so that they're viable, we find that they have lost a lot of their capacity to induce the, the illness. And so their pathogenicity has, be, has been significantly reduced. So the, the two things combined to give you quite a good level of safety. Oh, that's interesting. I wouldn't have thought that kind of something that wasn't done for the full amount of time would have had as strong as effect. But well, we, we were always worried about, you're not always guaranteed mm. continuous sunlight. Even, even in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, like we can get inactivations during the rainy season because in many parts you have the morning will be quite, quite sunny and then the, rains will, will, the rain clouds will gather in the afternoon. Mm. So we were always very worried about those circumstances where you don't have complete inactivation. We would be looking for effects on the pathogenicity. We would be looking for the possibility that the cells might recover from a partial inactivation. So for that reason, that's something that we've pursued vigorously. Yeah. So you mentioned that there, these devices are made sometimes just by plastic bottles. When you're making them either here in Ireland to test or when they are in these communities, are they kind of a standardised thing that you make or are they made by just what is available? So people people often talk to me about, oh, you're doing these solar technologies, you mm. know? And at its very basic level, it's a plastic bottle in the sun. And we started off with whatever plastic bottles we could get our hands on, uh, soft drinks bottles from well-known manufacturers. And that is the basic what we call solar disinfection reactor. Mm -hmm. It's plastic made from uh, polyethylene terephthalate, PET. You'll see it stamped on the base. Mm -hmm. And that is our basic solar disinfection process. Mm -hmm. So the basic bottle for solar disinfection, you might get two litres, you might get three litres. But if you've got five or six children, that's a lot of bottles for a family. So we've spent the last couple of years, well, the, the last 10 years, looking at larger volume transparent containers that are socially acceptable within the, the household. So we've looked at making transparent jerry cans and transparent buckets for solar disinfection purposes. And, and that was the central thrust of the two European Union funded projects, the water spout and, and the body water. Uh, as well as that, other things we've been looking at are larger volume systems that you could hook up to harvested rainwater tanks and then you could use in a community setting like a primary school or in a clinic and, and we've we've tested those kind of systems in primary schools in southern Uganda and in the townships of South Africa outside uh, Cape Town. Okay yeah because I was going to ask about kind of scaling things up from just the one family unit do you think that that would be kind of the purview of a future project these big community sized Vessels, I suppose. Um, I've got to be careful how I answer that question <laughs> because you've got to remember who your target audience or your target user is. There are people at the bottom of the finance ladder who have very limited funds to spend on water treatment. So the majority of these people, they can certainly afford basic solar disinfection or replace their opaque jerry can with a transparent one or their opaque bu bucket with a transparent one. But once you start getting into larger community-based systems, well, we've run them in Uganda, in the primary schools mm -hmm. in South Africa, and they work. The basic system, or the cost for the prototype for that, might be four or 5,000 euros 
And that's a lot of money for something that's producing perhaps 250 litres of water per day. It's enough for a primary school with maybe uh, 150 children or 200 children. But if you've got larger community requirements, well, then maybe solar disinfection is is not the the technology that you would be looking at. Mm -hmm. But we, we still see situations where that is... It is appropriate for very remote settings, like we've looked at clinics in very, very remote parts of Ethiopia, for example. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you're involved with two European level projects. Um, So that would be the Pani Water and the Water Spout projects that were funded by Horizon 2020. So the Pani Water project deals with water treatment in India. Could you tell us about the current water treatment situation there and how the project is developing the technologies? So the India project is called Pani Water. The Hindu word for water is Pani. So that's where we get the Pani Water project. So it's water, water, basically. The main objective of that project is to remediate water, to treat water that is contaminated with what we call contaminants of emerging concern. So we would be talking about pharmaceutical products, personal care products, antibiotic-resistant microbes, antibiotic-resistant genes. So we're looking at six separate technologies. Three of them are for treating wastewater. Mm-hmm. And the, the hope is that for the wastewater treatment prototypes, the output would be used for agricultural purposes. And then the other three processes are looking at treatments for drinking water. So one of those is the project I'm involved in again, and that's it's following on from the the water spout project where further developing this transparent jerry can for the the indian communities and then we have a second technology built around ultraviolet c uvc led diodes again for household slash community usage in small urbanized uh, communities in india and then the final one really is it's it's very early technology where they're using photocatalysts and electric fields to create, we call it an oxidative environment. It's an environment where there are lots of of different ions, high energy ions within the water, and they act like molecular chainsaws that just chop up the, either the chemical contaminants or the cell membranes of the microbial contaminants. So that's six projects uh, where three years into what was a four year project but then along came the pandemic we've had two years of restricted activity because of the pandemic we were just at the point of going into community trials but they had to be put on hold so we're now coming back to to a more whatever normal environment we have these days a lot of that that work now is resuming and the european union have been very flexible in their approach and they've they've agreed an extension to what was originally a four-year project that's going to go on for another an additional 12 months now. And some of the things that you mentioned there that aren't just directly based off sunlight, so you mentioned the diodes, would they be more expensive then to implement? Yes, is, is the short answer. Wherever there's a technology input, there's going to be a cost associated with that. But the Indian environment is very interesting because it's not classed as a developing country or a low to medium income country. It's quite, there's quite a wide range of income 
gradations. Mm -hmm. So we see a definite market for those mid-range technologies, or at least my partners see the market there. I've always focused on on the rural household applications for the people at the bottom of the of the finance ladder. I don't have any patents. I don't patent any of the technologies. Mm. The, the whole point of the mm. of the project is to develop a range of technologies, some with the hope of having commercializable yeah. uh, outputs. So. so, and then who are the partners that you're working with on the project in India? The Indian partners, we've got a range of, of partners. We, we have researchers and universities who are co-designing a lot of the technologies. It's, it's not as if the, the, the innovation is coming from Europe and that we're implementing it in India. It's very much a co-design. But, but just as important as the, the scientists we have, we always partner up with organisations that have links into the communities that we want to work with mm-hmm. because there's no point in me just driving up to a village and throwing transparent jerry cans at them. They'll, they'll wonder, what's this all about? What are you doing? Mm. So we have partners who are small to medium enterprises. We've got partners who are aid agencies. In the past, we've partnered with faith-based organisations, charities, universities. There's quite, a, quite the range of partners. And you mentioned with the Water Spout project, and I suppose it's the same for this one, that you're not just focused on the technologies then, it's also how to implement them in a way that is sustainable, as in will continue to be used once the project is finished. Can you talk a little bit about how you kind of broaden your research scope to include not just the technology, but also kind of the social aspects of the society? That, that's a vital aspect of the research. I, mean, I come from a physics background, a very technical background, and if I was truthful... For the first 15 years of my research career, I was very sniffy about the social sciences. I didn't see them. What are they? Is it a science at all? But in fact, if you don't have a good social science component to your project, you can invent the best technology in the world and it will stay on your your laboratory bench unused. So you have to find a way for the communities that can benefit from it to recognize that there is a problem and what these people are doing is a solution to that problem. So that's why we've partnered. We were very lucky in that we partnered with the social sciences schools in Maynooth University and then with social science schools in Uganda and also in in India. And it's vitally important because unless the community trusts your partner, you'll get nowhere with them because they've got completely different stressors than we have i'm worrying about well will my technology work they're worrying about will my children die from the next bout of dysentery they get or can i afford the the medicine for the next time my child gets dysentery those kind of things so it's a completely different mindset that certainly i wasn't equipped to to process when i started this and i i had to be led by the hand by social scientists and slapped around the head quite often by them to say, no, Kevin, you need to realise this is a big problem. For example, we, uh, we had a project in Malawi where we were using transparent buckets and they would leave the buckets outside their houses. You, you, you'd inactivate it during the day and then it would cool down during the night and then it would be ready for use the next day. 
But their big concern was, will the buckets be interfered with overnight? And we were saying, well, who will interfere with your, your buckets? You're in a village. Do you not trust your neighbours? Well, some of our neighbours we trust. There are witches as well in, in the area. And I'm a physicist and I'm thinking, magic, voodoo. I can't be dealing with this. But if that's your mindset, you're in big trouble. So if it's a problem for your community, it's a problem for your project. You will not get effective implementation of the technology. So at this stage, for me, most of the science is a done deal. We know how it works. We know what will work, what won't work. For me, the big unknowns are how do we get communities to use these technologies, to use them effectively, to use them continuously. Even, even little things like uh, in our Cambodia project, when we go to the villages, I'd sit down, I'd, I'd talk to the, to the people through an interpreter, and then from the first couple of meetings, the interpreter got up and said, the next time in the next village, you need to take your hat off. <laughs> Something that would never dawn on me as being an issue, but that affects how they're receiving mm. the message from you. And it is your responsibility as the person going in to align rather than to expect people to align to what to you be, expect. Exactly, yeah. to be sensitive to, to, to their needs. Absolutely. So do you think that as countries maybe get access to different methods, this is a stopgap measure or do you expect that this system will be used for a considerable amount of time? I think solar water disinfection will almost exclusively be used as the first rung on the water treatment ladder. If you don't have funds for treating your water, this is something that's available to those communities. And hopefully, through reduced incidence of illness, reduced costs for medicine, reduced costs for transporting of, of children to, to clinics, the fact that if children aren't ill from waterborne disease, the caregivers are available for uh, income-generating activities, household finances would improve and through that route, they might be able to afford uh, other water treatment technologies. Some of the technologies we've developed are suitable for uh, middle-income environments. And from Waterspout, one of our partners has now developed a harvested rainwater reactor for community use. They, they showed it at the expo in Dubai last year or the year before. And they're, they're certainly selling it and marketing it in the Indian market. So there's a range of applications. I suppose, finally, what do you think are the biggest misconceptions people have about the work you do? If you could get people to know, just take on board one thing about what you do, what would that be? Oh, um, the biggest misconception about what I do is that I have the summers off, which I don't. <laughs> um, but I, I suppose people think that the technologies I, I've I've worked on are much more sophisticated than they actually are. At the at the very bottom level, it's water in a bottle stuck in the sun. It's a very simple process. The biggest problem with that is sometimes it's such a simple process, people have a hard time believing that it really works. So it's not really a misconception. It, it's maybe an obstacle to uptake that we have to overcome. Yes, and in fairness, if somebody, I think, gave me the plastic bottle and ask me to put it in the sun, I might be a little bit hesitant without having it explained and having it um, kind of fully talked through like it would be today. So I can maybe understand that. 
but I suppose that's what the project is for. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a well-known problem. It's called technology bias. When mm. you go to a community and you want to give them a solution and you reach into the bag and you take out a plastic bottle when they were hoping you were going to do, produce some kind of fancy-looking filter. But it, 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 it still produces work. safe drinking water at the mm. end of the day. And that's what's important. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. So um, now kind of coming to the end of the interview, um, talk a bit about yourself. So where can people find you if they want to learn anything more? Well, the quickest way to get me would be on the Royal College of Surgeons website, rcsi.com. Uh, alternatively, the website associated with the Panny Water Project. So that would be pannywater.eu, P-A-N-I water.eu. Um, and then finally, something we asked some of our guests, is there anywhere that you would recommend people to get their science news? Maybe not from reading papers or anything like that, but a good source that you might have. I've always thought New Scientist is the business. I'm not paid by New Scientist in any way, mm. but I've always liked the way that the magazine has uh, a, a broad range of of the various sciences and also, well, I'm a little biased because the cartoonist for New Scientist was a PhD student of mine, Maria Boyle, a.k.a. Twisted Doodles. I love Twisted Doodles. I follow her on Twitter. I noticed some of the pictures around the office here are um, by her. I didn't realise she was your PhD student. Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, shout out to Twisted Doodles. So thank you very much for appearing on the podcast with us today. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. It was my absolute pleasure. That's everything for this episode. Thank you for listening. If you would like to find out anything more about us or Pint of Science Ireland, follow at Pint of Science IE on Twitter and Instagram and find us wherever you get your podcasts. Kevin can be found on Twitter at K-G-M-C-G-U-I-G-A-N. So that's K-G McGuigan. This episode was made with Brian Kennedy on sound and the editing assistance of Brian Kennedy and Molly McCrory. Research assistance was also from Brian Kennedy and Molly McCrory. Many thanks to the co-directors of Pint of Science Ireland for 2022. That's Anna Wiederburn and Ashley Gorman, as well as SFI. And thanks again to Kevin for joining us on this episode. Pint of Science Ireland is a part of a global initiative, Pint of Science, which aims to bring the research to you, the people that fund it. We'll see you next month. This has been Kate Finucane.